Why do we dream? How can we develop imagination, invite inspiration? What are the great truths of art? These are the kinds of questions that we pose to MJ Dorian, the guest of this episode of Entitled Opinion. Welcome. My name is Al, and I co-host it with Hunter. On this episode, we have on one of my favorite podcasters, the creator and host of Creative Codex. MJ Dorian is a self-described lifelong creative. He got his start in the visual arts and is now making waves in the podcasting space. You should listen to his episodes where he goes into deep dives of artists and their work and creates the sound and music for those episodes. In fact, the song you're hearing right now, Pillars of Light, is one of his. So stay tuned for this insightful and inspiring conversation with M.J. Dorian. Here we are, guys. Another episode of Entitled Opinion. We have with us MJ Dorian, and we're excited to talk to him today. What's up, guys? Yeah. Good morning, guys. Happy and honored to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me on. Hope you guys are doing well today. And thank you very much for coming on. Oh, MJ. yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I love the conversations you guys have, and that's the thing I'm most interested in is, is just good conversations. So, So I'm here for it. Cool. Is there anything that you do not want to talk about? Oh, right off the bat. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we can get into really interesting stuff by just avoiding politics. Politics tends to just drain all the air out of the room. And, and it's, it's like, it's like a sociopathic topic. Like the second it comes in, it just, <laughs> it, it turns all its attention toward itself and you forget about all these other nice, uh, high minded airy ideas so I, I would say just that otherwise I'm, I'm i'm free to talk about anything cool man uh i'm very happy to avoid politics it wears me out as well uh, <laughs> if you don't mind me asking i i don't know that much about you as a person i mean you don't talk about yourself on the podcast that much i was doing some cursory investigation on the internet um i can see that you have this or that same music like a museum that you've been affiliated with You've done a music video. You've done lots of different kinds of art. Uh, and I was just wondering if you might like to give us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. I don't talk about myself much on the show. Uh, but I guess this is a part of the, this kind of venue. I, I can allow myself that that um, e ego feeding moment. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, I would say, you know, I, I'm a lifelong creative I, I started with visual art. I went to high school for that with fine art painting. Somewhere along the way, I kind of discovered guitar and, you know, one of my first creative idols was Kurt Cobain and songwriting. And so I got into that side of things. I went to college for music composition and then I did a master's in film scoring. And this obviously has nothing to do with podcasting or narrative writing. And so 
it's it's just been this not I wouldn't say a whirlwind of of creative kind of activity and indulgence, but I have certainly um, to a certain extent let let the intuitive side of my creativity guide me throughout my my journey. You know, I obviously have a day job, so I, I'm not uh, letting my wife skirt all the bills, but um, the the meaning that it provides me is enough of a reason to just allow every few years maybe you know i get a new interest or a new passion and i don't throw the other ones to the side but i, I let myself uh, follow follow the lead of, of that intuition and see where it goes so how did your intuition invite about a podcast because you've done various forms of audio work and visual work um, but pod podcasting is primarily audio uh, what brought you into the space? Yeah, I would say one of the things that really engaged me was the feeling that podcasting was a new art form. And as a creative, that's a very exciting thing to witness. And so I, w I was a fan of podcasts. I was already listening to, you know, a number of them. Uh, I, I started my show. It's going to be about five years ago this year. And yeah, thank you. And at that time, I was really into things like Radiolab. And these, the first season of Serial really grabbed me. These kinds of shows that were more than just only conversation, even though there's great shows for that as well. But what really grabbed me was, was this idea that you can really engage people with a narrative, uh, really activate their imagination through simple sound design and uh, basic music editing. And just the idea of, of structuring something within the limit of time, you know, within the limit of 40 minute episode, an hour long episode, and, and how that allows, how that allows someone's imagination to kind of get activated and, and, and what that's all about. So that really engaged me. And I thought, you know, well, let me try this. I think I'm going to really enjoy this process. And so that's kind of how it started. I created a show that I wanted to hear. If that show had already existed, I would have been listening to it and not creating it. Yeah, I, I love your show. It's honestly one of my favorite. I love the sound design and the audio work you do. I'm trying to Thank remember you. what episode it was where you said, let's let's have a walk. And and, I, and there was the footstep sound effects and you're sort of describing a walk through, um, I think it was one of the artists like hometown. And I think you, you must have studied the, um, the kind of like architecture of the time. I can't remember who which episode that was. Was that Leonardo da Vinci? Yeah, there was a walk through Florence during the Renaissance in, in the da Vinci episode. Yeah, I do these uh, sonic simulations, I call them, where uh, I, I think that that's another element of just engaging someone's imagination. And, and I think it, it, it plays to this idea that it's an element that we've kind of forgotten about, especially as adults. Like as kids, we fantasize all the time. You know, you're in class, uh, you look out the window, the teacher gets your attention. My daughter does that all the time, apparently, according to her teachers. And as adults, the only time we really get that is like during travel, because otherwise we're so engrossed by our phones. But but the, the opportunity for, for that sound, even if you're doing a chore, to, to carry you visually somewhere or just narratively somewhere, um, I, I find that really engaging, yeah. They got to say the, uh, the Van Gogh episode, uh, I think we listened to me and my son listened to one or two and, uh, and we sat cool. there on the couch and, uh, listened to it for like 40 minutes. And he was like, dad, what is this? <laughs> I was like, it's just, just, <laughs> it's just a good story, man. So I think, uh, oh, wow. how amazing. would you, how would you describe 
what you do. So like the podcast, if you had to describe it to a seven year old, what would you, how would you describe it? Yeah, no, funny enough, I, in one of the places I teach, they do classes and they engaged me with, with this challenge of, can you teach a podcast class? And then I, I just agreed because it was during COVID times. And I was like, yeah, no one's going to sign up to this. Sure, I'll, I'll teach it. And, and not expecting it to go through. And then months later, I'd forgotten about it. And they're like, so we have these, uh, we have several kids who have signed up to this podcast class. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, why would a seven-year-old want to do a podcast? So, yeah, I mean, I'm used to kind of explaining it to them. But it's, it's basically, it's telling stories through sound. That's it. You can, of course, do a conversation also, but, uh, but but even even in a sense, you know, a conversation is is it can be a type of story. So it's either conversations or stories, basically. Gotcha. That makes sense. I like it. I, I can envision listening to that, like with headphones on, and I'm walking through like this visual part of a museum with some like Microsoft AR glasses or something, and I can imagine imagine right. the the podcast going on in the background to be like a forty minute, you know, walk through uh, in a museum. That's neat. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool idea. Thank you, thank you. Cool. Uh, well, I, I wanted to touch upon a couple of the artists that you've highlighted, and then I'd like to get more in-depth with this most recent publication you've put forth, um, which is the sort of seven universal truths of art. But real quick, I just um, I wanted to highlight one of my favorite um new episodes newer episodes that you've done with bosch mm. so um you you did it was a two episode um sort of description both of bosch's background a little the little bit that we know about his life and then did a more of a deep dive into a particular work uh the, the garden of earthly delights and it's a triptych so it's got three panels to it it has this uh, this religious iconography and history for this format um and so i wanted to one thing i wanted to ask you was how do you think that the painter bosch was able to evoke these images um i mean because he doesn't have the i mean he it must have come from his imagination right do you have any indication what kind of methods or inspirations he might have had yeah i mean that's a really fascinating question that's that's kind of at the heart of the mystery of someone like bosch who has this this visionary imagination and it's it's what's remarkable to consider is that he's a contemporary of leonardo da vinci like they both exist in the same timeline they just happen to be in different countries but and, and it's it's kind of known that people in the in the renaissance italy found out about hieronymus bosch um i think toward the end of his life and they they were like who's this guy you know and and so at that time people would sketch the paintings and like send them to like their friends instead of obviously you couldn't take a picture but yeah so one of the remarkable things and one of the things about him i think that most people don't realize is that he comes from a long line of artists and that's a very rare thing especially even in those times. I mean, his, his, his lineage of, of artistry as a family profession goes back about four generations that we can trace. So his, his father was an artist, his grandfather was an artist, and his great-grandfather was also a, like a professional artist. They would get commissions for uh, cathedrals and eventually in his time for 
works for nobility and wealthy people. And so, I mean, he grew up with a paintbrush in his hand, you know. And so a lot of those things that we see in his work that maybe to, to an amateur artist that's, you know, just starting out and they have to start from step one, they have to learn the foundation, right? And they have to take a few years, you know, maybe they have to go to university to learn it these days. But for him, that foundation was already like rock solid. You know, the second he becomes uh, a, a preteen or a teenager, that stuff he already knows. So from that point on, he's just ready to take it where he wants to. And where he wants to take it is, is into these other territories of, you know, um, these very dreamlike imagery, uh, which you can argue is one of the starting points of, of, of a style like surrealism is, is when a painter decides, well, we don't want to represent the world in a realistic fashion. Like, what else can we do with, with these symbols we're creating? We can represent psychological truths, philosophical, you know, symbols. And I think it came from that. I, I think without that strong, rock-solid foundation of that, that, that naturally was built around him from his birth, I think it would have been much more difficult for him to get to those heights, I think. Sure. I, I was just thinking to myself the other day how we have to get a, get the routine. We have to, and that routine can be very helpful actually for creative space because as you habituate something and it becomes natural and kind of automated, while your body is going through the muscle memory of it, sometimes your mind floats and wanders and then that can actually I found one of the best ways to find out what's the next step I want to take in my life is is just while I'm doing my boring job allow myself to daydream yeah so I think that's I think that's a great point yeah well part of that is this thing the default mode network that comes into play when when you allow yourself to be bored and so sometimes a menial task is the perfect thing looking out a window for a bit is the perfect thing and the, the default mode network is something you know, psychologists, neurologists understand to be the, the, this um, state of mind that engages when your brain is allowed to be bored. And that's a more creative state of mind. That's where fantasy comes into play. That's where your, your brain almost starts to entertain itself with something or look for something to do or, or think about past, present, future or memories. And, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, I think that goes hand in hand with that. So do you think that... Um social media or being constantly engaged with a feed of digital information uh, mutes the default mode network and may even suppress creativity? I think on the whole, I mean, it's like it's like the argument of a net good, you know, or not. Mm. But but certainly the way it the barrage of it is is a detriment toward more creativity the constant barrage of it and, and the way obviously that things like TikTok are designed to um, especially like get their hooks into young people, into teenagers. But but at the same time, you know, I think humans, we're smarter than, than we, we give ourselves credit for. And so unconsciously, we sense these things um, are absent or lacking. And so you see, I, I just recently read an article that, you know, there, there are teenagers who are like rebelling against social media and just turning their phones off and reading a book like 
mm-hmm. their form of rebellion. Like that's that's like the punk wave now is like no technology. I, I think unconsciously we sense that there's things wrong or things missing because we feel it. And so despite those those detriments, I think we're not we're not a lost cause yet. <laughs> right. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have that uh, perspective of optimism when sometimes uh, things can be so bleak when you look at news, the mainstream news. Um, Hunter, did you have any questions about any particular episodes that MJ's put? Um, I mostly wanted to talk about the uh, the seven universal truths of art. I found that particularly fascinating. Um, but on that topic that you guys are you know you're on right now the social media i think the um our minds are geared towards creatively solving problems and i think social media poses a fake problem that our minds seek to solve hmm. so i think social media breeds hmm. competition and and we want to be the most famous we want to say we have the best stuff we have the hottest body or whatever and i think our minds are geared towards competing in that space that we created for you know whatever reason and that takes away from being creative in other avenues. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot of detriments, surely. Um, there might be more detriments than, than positives. Like one one aspect of it that people don't also realize is I think it goes into what you're you're saying, Hunter, is this this feeling of competition or the feeling of there's a spotlight here and let me get that attention mm-hmm. is is this uh it goes into this term that audience capture. And I think artists because we're, we're we're seeking validation so much, especially the artists who are you know just starting out or just getting their foot in the door and, and, and want the attention for their work. Uh, what what tends to happen, and I see in, in social media, is that artists will fall into these traps of noticing that oh this thing I did once got a lot of attention. Let me just do that more because that's getting successful. And. That's that's a it's a really dangerous path to go down as a creative because then you're no longer creating something that was meaningful at the time because of a very specific moment, a very specific inspiration, a very specific set of factors in society that that you could say society needed that message. Instead, you're creating things, you know, because you it seemed like they worked with the algorithm, mm-hmm. and it's a very dangerous road to go down as a creative. Because the attention isn't everything. Eventually, you start to realize, you know, you're you you have the two hundred thousand followers you wanted, but you're creating shit art that you know no longer gives you any value. And now, what do you do? You know, do you just switch gears and say, okay, I'm gonna go do rap music now, and nobody's gonna you know be like everybody was gonna be confused. So, yeah, that, that that's part of it, I think as well. Yeah, I think there's an an uh, element of authenticity too. If you're doing something that you don't truly believe in, then people will at one point eventually will they'll be able to tell that you're doing something just for the likes that you're not truly behind and something else we we entered, we had someone on uh, Luke Sandlin he was uh he's a legislative staffer in DC and uh something he brought up was uh, there's two ways to um to serve your your districts that you represent and one is kind of like they voted for me and they trust me to do what I think is you know vote the way I think is right and then there's another way to just do whatever the people in my district want me to do. So to me, there's mm. there's some parallels in how you uh, how you can govern people as well. Because the if you if they vote for you, you take the 
the position that you want to, that they voted you in for you to make decisions for them. I feel like that's more, almost being more authentic, um, but maybe a little dictatory. <laughs> but there's 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 yeah. some parallels I think that can be drawn there. Yeah, no, certainly, certainly. We're, we're all seeking validation. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, and and that's part of part of it. But um, in, in any creative pursuit, there is there there's a there's a higher aim that is always there, like exerting its influence on anyone involved in creativity. And and it, and it exists in the realm of, of, you know, the archetypes. It exists in the realm of of, of gods and ideals, and it, it pushes you in a certain direction. And when we stop listening to that, that's that's a that's a dangerous thing because then the thing we're creating starts to like be drained of of its value and meaning. So yeah, that's an interesting idea. The anthropomorphized muse, mm. um, and um, a thought that has occurred to me kind of recently is in, in the modern day we don't so much enjoy the idea of this uh ethereal spirit guiding us or taking hold of us we we're very especially in the united states we value independence a lot um, and so to think that we are at the whim of something bigger than us is uncomfortable but the thought i've had is if you don't choose what kind of spirit you're going to direct your energies towards then one of these spirits might choose you mm. and that could be uh, that could be more painful um in that vein mj how do you call upon the muse how do you how do you formulate uh, or or establish a relationship with this higher uh, ideal yeah i mean part of being you know, an artist, part of being born into this, with that kind of artist soul, you could say, uh, one, you, you feel the world very intensely, and, you know, things that might not bother somebody bother you, and things that somebody else might not fixate on or think about, you think about. And, and so naturally, like, you have these feelers out in the world, and in your immediate environment, and in, in your own self, you know, so you you end up because of the art that you do, you, you spend a lot of time in your inner world. And so you develop a, a, a more keener sense of, of the intrapersonal intelligence because of that. And so part of that is just being able to to mm, appreciate solitude, being able to listen to the, the small things that pull you in certain directions rather than just always following the, the logical thing or the thing that you think is going to make money um, or get you attention. So there is a lot of like this push and pull of, of your interest, of your passions, of, of what you feel especially curious about. That's a big thing. Like curiosity is a way of your, your brain telling you there's something here that you should go dig in and discover there's there's a little treasure hidden in the field here and and if you follow it there's something really interesting that you eventually find or a rabbit hole or a thread to something else but if you don't it doesn't punish you you don't you know feel any worse for it which is what's interesting and, and you don't feel like any 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 deva devalued but but by pursuing it you start to realize like oh usually when i pursue the curiosity something happens somebody yeah. messages me and they're like 
that was incredible. And that was the, one of the most profound things I've seen, you know, all year or, you know, or I just feel really nice. You know, so, so part of it is that is, is playing with these more subtle ways that you're pushed and pulled in directions and, and that what it leads to. Yeah. I really love that. That's it's my, in, that's one of my biggest yeah. motivations for this podcast is, uh, if all else fails, I'm going to get to talk to some cool people and learn some things yeah. and have good conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's incredibly rewarding on its own. Right. Absolutely. So speaking on the, um, finding space for the silence, we could kind of transition to the seven universal truths of art. You wrote an essay about it, and then you uh, read that ep that essay in your most latest episode, MJ. Yes. Um, and then there's these seven universal truths of art. Hunter, do you have that pulled up in front of you by any chance? I can pull it up right now. Hunter's going to pull it up on the uh, shared screen so that we can reference yeah. it. Sounds good. Sounds good. And so you, MJ, perhaps have more qualification to be able to distill these kinds of uh, truths because you've been doing a five-year-long study on various artists. Um, how? What was the impetus for the creation of this list? Yeah, honestly, it did. <laughs> again, we're, we're talking about like being guided in a certain direction by, by these intuitions. Uh, it didn't start as like an, an intention to write seven universal truths of art. Yeah, you know, there, there, it wasn't that at, at the outset. But, you know, as you guys probably know, these things tend to take a life of their own sometimes. And so initially the impetus was to write what I could imagine would be a letter to a young artist, especially a young artist of today, because I'll, I'll hear from people um, every few months that are parents of, of, of a child who is now a teenager and they're interested in the arts, you know. Or they're a young artist themselves and they're like, what do I do? I feel lost and dejected and forgotten by society. And so there's these, these, these aspects where I felt like artists today don't have much support at all in terms of the society, in terms of like feeling like they have any value to provide. And there's this, uh, there's a, a series of, of famous letters by the writer Rilke, which uh, is a letter to a young poet. And so I thought, you know, what would I have wanted to read when I was in high school pursuing, you know, fine art and painting? What would I have found valuable? And so I ended up starting to write this. And, and yeah, I've, I've had some good response from it so far. And that's where I started to realize like, oh, there's these things, which I initially said, what people don't tell you is, and then I'd say every act, every creative act is an act of courage. And then as I started to go down the essay, I realized, oh, wait, these are these are more than just what people don't tell you is. These are like universal truths in a sense that people and all, all artists end up experiencing. So that's how it came about. Yeah, I like it a lot. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you've read any of Robert Greene's uh, material, but he has the 48 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies mm. of War, and uh, I think right. I think this would be uh, pretty interesting if you looked at it in the same vein. Cool, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that comparison. I, I used to read some of those books back in the day, too. Yeah, when I was in my young 20s, it was sort of my Bible. I think the uh, 48 oh, really? Laws of Power was kind of an evil take on on uh, 
on people. <laughs> I, th- I think yes. there are more positive takes on on how to interact with people and you know get power and and add value to the world. And that was certainly not a positive take. <laughs> a bit Machiavellian, yes. sure. <laughs> But also good for the uh, marketing, right? That provocation. Um, that's a. Some people say there's no such thing as bad press. So to be able to say something that's a little bit risque helps bring attention to that word. And then I mean, he, I believe in that book, he prefaces it by saying, "You can use these powers for good or for ill." Right. Yeah. I mean, and we're all interested in that too. It's like the dark side of yeah. human psychology, yeah. and. Um, Every, every it's like a cycle every five years every decade somebody comes out and they they show us something about the dark side of human psychology and maybe like these these these, these weaknesses we all have for for certain things and we're all just completely engrossed by it because it's the truth right and at the end of the day some some element of what someone like that is writing about is true uh, we are incredibly superficial uh we are uh, prone to just liking somebody because they say our name five times in a row. You know, there, there, there's, there's elements there that, that definitely we, we should be made aware of. But, but yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Cool. Um, so let me just read out the seven universal truths of art that are covered in this essay. So the first one is every creative act is an act of courage. The second is you will never feel good enough even after decades of proving yourself. Three, there are only two paths for an artist, to create public work or to create private work. Four, to be an artist means to be possessed by something unreasonable and be devoted to something impractical. Five, the artist's soul thrives in liminality. Six, solitude is sacred. That's what you were talking about just now. And seven is creativity renews humanity and empowers the individual. So something that I was thinking about while listening to the podcast and then rereading the essay was that I think there are lessons to be learned here, not just for the artist. I think in many endeavors, there is a creative aspect and hopefully actually whatever we do, there may be a creative aspect. So I think there are things in here that are uh, universally applicable. And I was I was really taken by uh, the one that seemed most unique to me or the one that gave me the most pause for thought was the distinction between the public work mm. or the private work. In the essay and in the episode, you said, this is an illusion, but an important one. Mm. Could you... Could you develop that a little bit further? Sure, sure, absolutely. Right, so the, the, the point is there are only two paths for every artist to create public work or to create private work. Yeah, I mean, that's one of, the, that's one of these things that no, what, no one will tell you about art is. And, and when we talk, you know, when we're talking art in this case, we're referring to all acts, you know, of creative work, not specifically visual art. This is just... This could be, you know, cooking. This could be somebody developing a skill for photography uh, and, and pursuing it. That This isn't specifically visual art. And this still applies. So the idea being that when you are, are trained in your field, you go to university or whatnot, the, the main thing they, they train you toward is creating public work, 
is creating work that will be available for public viewing, for appreciation, for critique, and essentially also to uh, further your career and make some kind of livelihood. But really what, what no one ever gets you into, except when you're in elementary school, is that there's private work. There's work that you can create that's specifically for your own benefit. There's work that you can create for a friend, a family member, um, uh, so a loved one who passed away. There's, there's this whole range of human expression that exists that, that gives us incredible meaning and value, even if it's just for our own sake, uh, therapeutic sake, that has nothing to do with anybody seeing it in the public eye, critiquing it or making a livelihood. And, and in some ways we've forgotten that that exists, but artists still do it because usually they'll balance the two. They'll, you know, they'll create the work that they're interested in and passionate in and not expect it to be shown or do it for anybody except their own sake. And then there's, there, there's their persona out in the public doing very specific things. So two examples I could give is like Salvador Dali, the famous painter of the 1900s, you know, who's considered one as one of the like fathers of surrealism. He could really be thought of as like a public artist, like a public work artist. He's creating things specifically for galleries, for sale on the market. And, you know, he has museums of his work. And then there's somebody like Emily Dickinson, uh, the poet who existed in the 1800s. And she wrote 1,800 poems, which no one saw until she died. And when she died, her collection was discovered by her sister. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> How come she didn't tell us she was writing these, these works of genius? And they become published and they're considered among the greatest uh, English poems. Some of them, you know, just, just startlingly brilliant. And she was just working at these privately in solitude in her room uh, with the door closed. You know, you could argue, what was she doing this for? Maybe she had a sense of like, eventually her work would be discovered. But, but clearly they provided her so much meaning and value as private work. Uh, and occasionally she would share them with a very close friend with, with Susan Gilbert. And so there was value there. But yeah, so those are the, the kind of the, the dichotomy there. I don't know if there's anything else you're thinking about. Right. Well, because even with someone like Emily Dickinson, in the back of her mind, she knew to a certain extent that this work will eventually be seen. Uh, she even has one poem, uh, which, which often is used as, as the start of most of her poetry books, where she's addressing the world um, as the reader of her work. And uh, in effect, she says that, that the future will understand you know, uh, these writings in a sense, and, and hopefully they will not judge me too harshly for them. So as anyone creating any kind of creative work, you do have that in the back of your mind and mm, it pushes and pulls you in its own way. And so I would say there's that element to it, but also the other element to it being that um, most artists create both and uh, there's a balance there because the private work, the stuff that drives you is often personal, but it also it feeds the the uniqueness of the public work, because often in your private work, uh, you know that which you do for yourself or for for close friends or, or people in your family, 
you you often discover things that you wouldn't when you're when you're creating commissioned pieces and, and that mm -hmm. that keeps feeding the uniqueness and the value uh, that you then bring into the public work so yeah i would say that's why the illusion is there there's an interesting story uh, i was listening to a podcast on the, the tangi tangentially speaking podcast by chris ryan he had on the former editor of high times magazine and this guy had lived a wild life mm. and when he was younger he worked as a courier between museums and artists mm. and he said there was one example where in manhattan uh, or in new york uh, city and he had to run and get some prints from this artist who was living out in sort of an industrial area he had rented um, a warehouse space by the docks and so this young um, courier runs to the warehouse and he goes there to gather up the prints that they're going to be selling at the gallery later on and he sees that there's in the middle of the warehouse this enormous totem pole that the guy has carved from one of the leftover dock posts mm -hmm. they, had, they had removed one of these dock posts and he had obtained it and then he had done these intricate carvings all the way up this huge piece of wood and the kid he's looking in his hands at this like formulaic kind of industrially produced screen print after screen print mm. of a painting and he's looking up at this big totem pole and he's saying dude what are you doing with these when you <laughs> could be doing things like that and the artist says those screen prints are what allow me to do that mm. those those are what sell the money and allow me the space and time to be able to work on this great work mm. yeah no that that exactly that's a great story works perfectly in this yeah the dichotomy of the two one feeds the other in a sense exactly yeah there's there's sort of a uh, yin and yang balance between the different motivations of art and the, the different expressions of it so um, i was just talking with one of my friends who produces music and i really enjoy his music and we use one of his songs for our podcast here um about that kind of a dichotomy Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough to try to be commercially viable and artistically authentic. Mm. It's, it's tough. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a, it's a balance. And the other factor to that, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but part of the things that go into play is, are you creating art or entertainment? And then there's, mm. there, that also is, is an illusory line between those two, because, um, Art is very tricky to define, but you kind of know it when you see it and you, you know it when you feel it, like when you create it, you, you know that, oh, that was that completely engaged me and I've, I've never seen or done something like this before. And then entertainment is like this thing where you kind of know you have to make a livelihood. You're making public work that um, is designed to be digestible. Right, it's not completely esoteric, and no one will ever will ever understand it. Uh, though some artists kind of have that spirit to to their work, but yeah, th there's all these balances between basically between perception and knowing you will be perceived. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that it's almost it's like a quantum a, the quantum mechanics of it. That if you observe something mm. at the quantum level, then it changes just because you observe it. Crazy. Mm -hmm. 
Always love thinking yeah. about that. I don't know what to think of that, though. That's one of those things that, like, scientists also don't know what to make There's of still it, magic. Right? I think there's still magic out there. I think something yeah. that's kind of sad in society today is that we think that we know everything. We've figured everything out, but we haven't, and there's still magic out there, and you can still find the magic if you look close enough. Yeah. And I've, I've always thought sure. that, uh, like, art... I don't know if I consider myself an artist, but uh, I always thought that art was something that if you try it too hard to get, you're not going to get it. And you kind of mm. just got to, I don't know, peer into the the right direction and the art will come to you. Kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you look at the night sky and you look at, if you look at a star, it's hard to find like a really faint star if you look directly at it. But if you look into the darkness, the other, the other mm. faint stars kind of make themselves apparent. Um, I always yeah. thought that if you, if you really try to look for the art, the magic of it, you're not going to find it. It kind of has to come to you, but you have to position yourself or look in the right direction for it to appear. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful way to describe it. It's almost Zen-like. And I think it, it goes back to that heart of the the topic of intuition and what that means, you know, uh, to be guided by a certain intuition. I, I love that visual of, of that staring into the, the darkness of space above and then eventually you do start to see your eyes adjust right and you start to see that there's the the fainter stars mm -hmm. there uh, i love that thank you for bringing that up well i think the so i mean i don't know if you get i had a question about the uh universal truths this might be a, a dumb question but um you mentioned that all art is valuable how would how would you uh argue that like how could you explain why all art is valuable? Yeah, so I think that was the point of all art is inherently valuable. Yep, yep. Uh, as a counter argument to somebody perhaps saying, you know, I, I feel like creating, but there's just so much art already out there, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the response would be all art is inherently valuable. All creative work is inherently valuable. And the reasoning there is that one, you might be guided by an impulse or compulsion to do it, but you might not realize what the direction is that it's going in. And quite often, if that compulsion is there, it's because the thing you're creating is also meaningful to you. And it's, it's, it's giving you something in return for, for you spending time with it. Um, one of the examples would be that uh, Dr. Carl Jung, he was one of the first psychoanalysts to realize the the effectiveness of including art within therapy now you know we just call it art therapy but at the time he he realized like oh if if my patients if they if i tell them to draw or paint a mandala uh, about this problem or that that kind of encapsulates their life and if we look at that it, it gives them some kind of insight like they've learned, they've learned something new or a new perspective on on this this problem they're facing, and and similarly, the the compulsion to create is usually guided by something else, and you don't often even realize it until toward the end of the work that like, wow, this was you know this was therapeutic or this this made me realize this thing about myself, so in that sense it's inherently valuable, and then of course you can make the argument that other people seeing it. Um, you don't know what effect it's going to have on them, but uh, it could be the most profound thing someone's ever seen. And it, it only matters to one person. You know, it, it, 
there's a lot of variables mm -hmm. in the perception of something after the fact too yeah I like that i think the assumption that all art is valuable i think would create more good than bad if you say like oh maybe what you're working on is is worthless then and, and you should stop doing what you feel pulled to do i like the take on it it's uh you could take two stances and i think the other stance is a little negative i think this is a better way of looking at things yeah well what's also interesting and we don't think about is that there there's a chain of events that often have to happen for for something great to truly come into fruition and part of that chain of events is is either a few failures in a row or in the case of you know a very specific field of art you you learn from each piece you create whether it's you know taking a, a bunch of interesting photos whether it's you know learning a, a new painting style or whatever it is but your your first work isn't going to be the greatest thing you've ever made or a substantial piece usually and so a, a lot of times if someone feels a lack of confidence in in the field that they're doing it what we don't often see is is down the road by by doing a few things in a row you might arrive somewhere really interesting that no one's ever touched before or discovered and so there's that element to it too so maybe the thing you just created is is a piece of crap but it taught you a few things and those things are going to carry over into the next thing you do and then that carries over and then it builds on itself it's cumulative and, and so there, there's that element to it too yeah i've got uh so i mean you say all art is inherently valuable and uh and then i i think you mentioned something about surrounding yourself or uh you know not i don't know not being affected by people who say you can't do things do you have do you have a, a group of people that you surround yourself with on purpose to help you be you know achieve more things with your art or do you have a certain group of people that you stay away from intentionally or is this or are you not affected at all you're one of those people that's you know i don't care what other people think or i don't need any support <laughs> well uh, li like everybody I, I need a certain degree of validation and so uh naturally some of that has to has to come from somebody you know even if it's just friends or, or new acquaintances and things like that but as far as yeah surrounding myself i mean i'm at, i'm gonna be 38 in march i think at this age you know i, I have a i have a daughter i have a I have a son on the way anyone that reaches thank you that reaches this age and is a parent you naturally weed out the the bad the bad influences out of your life uh, partially because you're just at an age where you don't have time for this crap mm -hmm. And, and then the other side of it being once you have a child that you're taking care of, um, unconsciously, you weed those people out because it's now it's part of part of your life is about creating good influences for your child. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good that's a good answer. I mean, I, I have a seven year old son and uh, they definitely prioritize the things that matter in your life for you. If yeah, you weren't doing that totally. already, the kid will <laughs> will definitely prioritize it for you. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's very interesting the effect that it has. Uh, overall, a very positive effect. If you, if 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 you're not a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yes, if right. you're not a sociopath or a narcissist. <laughs> yeah. Have you found that having kids has influenced your creative works? It's an interesting question. I mean, not directly. You know, I do sometimes take some nice photos or something of, of my daughter because. Um, it kind of memorializes a certain moment in her growth and, and, and time. But 
only in the sense of that I want to make sure uh, I'm, I'm leading by example in a sense that I have these certain passions and if I shelve them, then what, what kind of examples does that set for, for my child about their interests that they might want to pursue, even if she's not creative at all, you know, even if she just wants to be an accountant or, or she loves math or she, you know, wants to go into sports, whatever it is, I think the idea of seeing me plunking away at the piano, writing notes on a paper um, in my free time, uh, I think that alone is the kind of influence that, that I think the positive influence of, of, of my art making um, that I see, you know? So you're not trying to do any direct instruction via the art, either for your own family or for the audience. You're trying, you're, you're trying to do things that inspire inspire you and then hope that that can provide some kind of further framework for inspiration? I suppose that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, there are certain things, you know, that I, I create with an, with a, with a direct intention in mind, like in the podcast, you know, creative codex, there are certain episodes, episodes that are like the guided meditation episodes which are created very specifically with the intention of engaging people maybe who wouldn't have otherwise done any meditation to try it, or the people who have tried it already to be engaged by something maybe they wouldn't come across and, you know, encourage that inner exploration of themselves and, and maybe even get them interested in, in a certain, you know, spiritual development. And so it's not always like following passions or whatnot. Occasionally, there are certain things that are that are deliberate directions to go in, you know. Yeah, I think that's actually how I found you was um, I was doing research on Jung and there I can't remember what it was called exactly, but it's like this unconscious practice where he would create a space for himself to be led by these figures. Um, and, and this is eventually, and he would write this down in the black book, and this is eventually what led him to develop the red book. And you had an episode on how to develop this unconscious invitation, this practice of unconscious invitation, I think. And, um, I, I did it for a couple months. Oh, wow. I was locked up in, uh, during COVID. Sorry, one month. It was one month. Um, and I took I took notes after every after every session and in imitation of writing a black book, and I div I came across these character cartoon characters in a sense, but these figures in my imagination, which have stuck with me hmm. even still. So it's very interesting how intentionally engaging something of yourself that you're not in control of can elicit. Um, symbolism. What was the name of that practice again? That, yeah. that Jungian practice. The, well, it has two names. I named it the digging method for, for yeah. the specific act of visualizing the process of digging inside of yourself in in a, in a space that you've decided on. But the the actual activity itself, Jung referred to as active imagination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I incorporated that. Uh, the initiation of this 
uh, active imagination practice for me was I, I, w I found in my imagination a spot that I would go to as a child mm. and I'd go down there uh, sort of on the border of a swamp. I'd go down a hill and I'd go to the swamp and then I would dig it up until I sort of like fell into a well of unconscious and then would try to like journey through that. And, and uh, part of that practice I, I encountered these characters like one was very silly it was big boss beaver mm. he's this big beaver who uh he's got these other beavers who do a lot of the work and he's sort of like directing things huh. and he's this no nonsense kind of like let's get things done character <laughs> which you know it must be some aspect of my own um internal structure um i and it's a very personal question but when you were doing the digging method was there anything that came up for you I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a mixture of, of the absurd and the meaningful, basically. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes the absurd hides a layer of meaning underneath it. If, if, you, if you dig under that, you know, later in your notes, which is what, one of the reasons why writing it all down is so important, because you can l look at it later and realize like, oh, that wasn't just something crazy and random. It seems to tie in with this other thing. Um, the note taking is important. And it actually traces through uh, a history of magical traditions that, that do the same thing when, when you write these things down. But in terms of, yeah, personal things happen to me. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's a mixture of, yeah, things that are uh, surprisingly meaningful and then just the random scenes. And so and during the random scenes, you know, you, you can decide, oh, I'm going to keep digging because these elves aren't doing anything for me. <laughs> And then you go to wherever else it leads. And so, yeah, yeah, some of it surprised me. I think there was one that I talk about. I'm not sure if it was the second. I think it was in the second Jung episode, uh, episode 12. Uh, one which was um, a mansion. And I uh, first I met my father outside and I go into this mansion and no one's in it. And there's empty rooms and it's kind of decrepit. And then uh, the last room I enter, there's there's a girl, it's a teenager, who I knew in high school, and she um, she shoots herself in the head, and then I climb into the hole in her head to go into the next phase of the dream, and that that's not something I regularly do, so <laughs> so you that have done it before, me. <laughs> and and I hadn't thought about her. Her name's Nora. And I hadn't thought about her in years. So for her to appear there in this after this long hallway of many doors, which is, is a symbolic uh, archetypal experience of going through passageways in your brain, basically. The brain can be thought of as, you know, a cave, a cavern, a, a, a mansion, a palace. Uh, so to arrive at her was very meaningful. And, you know, I, I wrote that down and thought about it for quite a while after. Well, what is this? This is active imagination meditation digging meditation yeah yeah using what Jung he didn't call it this but it has these elements so i call it the digging method so there's a guided meditation in the podcast feed that is inspired by that yeah that's awesome For active imagination experience yeah i was doing um so this was right at the advent of covid about february march 2020 i was doing digging in a sense of trying to find out as much about Jung as I could. And I was looking into the Red Book. I was finding um, clips of that. And 
in discussions of Jung, I kept hearing this topic of the active imagination. And so I was looking around for methodologies of what this meant, this, this sort of intentional daydreaming. And yours was the only one I could find that discussed any kind of methodology wow. and, and developed it as a digging method. So uh, thank you for putting that out in the world and making this somewhat esoteric idea a bit more practical. Yeah, wow, I appreciate that. I mean, I had a smile on my face the whole time when you were talking about your experience with it. Uh, because again, it's one of these things that mm, we take for granted in modern society. You know, so we're so engaged by the external that we forget that there's, as Jung said, there's an infinite inward that we can participate mm. in. That just as the external world is infinite, the inner world is also infinite. And you can travel in there and, and experience things. And, and you can exp experience meaningful things. And this is something that in ancient cultures, you know, the further back you look, the, the more they were engaged with that side of life, the internal side of life, you know, the, the domain of dreams, of, of meaning, of symbology, you know, of spirit animals, of the gods, of, of myths, of telling stories. Um, and I think we're starting to realize that we need that too. It's, it's not completely gone. So, so there's, there's definitely hope. But yeah, that's what it makes me think of. Are you familiar at all with Australian Aboriginal Dreamtime? Only very loosely. I very recently found out about it. But is there something that you know more about it? I really wish I knew more about it. As far, I mean, it, it's a very diverse series of cultures across the whole continent that evolved over 60,000 years. They keep pushing wow. back further and further when they first think that people came to Australia. Um, and so... It was it was one of the most diverse language groups, but the the dream time had they they didn't necessarily think that waking walking around life was any more valid than dreaming life. They thought they were completely intertwined, mm. and that one influenced the other, and um, they had something called song lines, mm. which are these routes that one could walk or sing or do both together to impose or elicit or conjoin meaning with the landscape. Wow. And so when we think about, there's this, uh, this is a meditative process of, of walking a, like a labyrinth, a creative kind of labyrinth. And it's kind of like the figure of your logo is, is people walk in those uh, serpentine patterns and um, they are able to get into a creative state. Well, over generations, these cultures would develop songs that would play off of the geography. Mm. And so they could walk the same paths as their ancestors and develop the same kinds of meanings. It's almost like they were taking out this in internal significant structure and projecting it across the landscape. This is a very loose understanding of song lines and dream time. Um, but I, I was just curious if you knew about it, because the they protect, in a lot of uh, magical traditions, the knowledge is protected. You have to be initiated into it, and it's it's secret. Um, and so there's only a limited amount that I think has really gotten out. Mm. Um, I was just curious if you knew anything about it. Yeah, no, coincidentally, I had uh, very recently crossed paths with, with this topic, or, or a similar one about Aborigines, because I was, I'm working on an episode or a series about the performance artist Marina Abramovich, and she had spent a good amount of time, I, I believe it was a year or more, uh, 
in the Australian outback with living with Aborigines um, to, to basically learn from them these kinds of things. And part of her experiences are just, just startling and so interesting and so, so not modern world experiences. At one point she says that once she um, became accustomed to living with them, she started to realize that they don't communicate with words. They communicate, what she says, telepathically, or, or perhaps with, with such nuance of, of body movements, facial expressions, that you understand what the other person is saying and intending without having to voice it. And that that startled her the most because at first they weren't talking. And then there came a moment after a month of living with them where she understood all, every, what everyone was thinking. And she, like, there was just a switch that, that, that occurred. And um, she didn't have an explanation for it. And so it's things like that, yeah, that, that, that uh, yeah. also fascinate me. I gotta say, I am dead to that kind of subtlety. <laughs> well, I'd say that, that kind of segues into another topic that I wanted to ask you about, MJ, was psychedelics. I feel like when, when I take psychedelics, I feel like I'm more in tune with my environment, and I feel like I can feel what other people are thinking, even, I don't know if it's, if what I feel is what they're actually thinking. Um, but I think a common thread when I take psychedelics is it's like a fine, it's a walk, it's a balance between chaos and order. And, uh, I'm curious how, so last time, last time I did psychedelics, I wrote down some notes and Alec was there with me. He actually gave Ooh. me the psychedelics. <laughs> um, oh man, hopefully you, hopefully oh, you thanks for outing me, dude. <laughs> he's, he's the drug man. So the, uh, Shit. so when I did it, I took notes after and one of my, one of the, my notes was uh, always like control the chaos to a certain extent and consider metering the faucet, consider like controlling the chaos. You have to let some chaos in, but you need to have some sort of order and you have to meter the chaos, you know, coming into your ordered structure or whatever to get better. And I'm wondering if there's any parallels between that and your work and if you have to bring in, you know, intentional chaos to your work to make it more creative and that balance between order and chaos to, to get your point across. Wow, yeah, that's a wonderful topic. I mean, just to riff off of the, the topic of psychedelics that I think is, is, is just worth touching on for a moment even, I think the, one of the great benefits of something like psychedelics is that it reminds us that reality is actually an illusion. Like, mm. it reminds us that the, the, the things that we feel are so rigid in our understanding and our perceptions is is just just an illusion just like albert einstein famously said that it's a persistent illusion <laughs> and mm. something like psychedelics they they dissolve some of those barriers and and i think that's that's one of the great benefits of that kind of experience mm. but yeah in terms of chaos and order that's that's a tricky one i mean i certainly don't consciously engage in in introducing chaos but one maybe perhaps an element of that is is when i do have a curiosity i i, I pull on it like i pull on the thread to see where it leads and so there, there's a form of pursuing something unexpected and to me rather than than chaos uh, perhaps that's tangentially connected it, it is is the unexpected or the unknown mm -hmm. like as you pursue that you you discover things that, that you wouldn't have otherwise discovered 
even if it's like if I'm playing, you know, if I'm writing a piece on piano or for a film or for for a project I'm working on, rather than than starting with the the scale that I'm accustomed to, I'll I'll try to either create one that I've never played or play one that I'm not familiar with, and in the process of doing that, but pursuing you know something out of my comfort range, um, I often will discover something that I wouldn't have otherwise thought of. Mm-hmm. And so that perhaps there's a sense of that randomness or um, structured chaos or just pursuing the unknown out of curiosity that, that, that will surprise me. And, and I think generally is a good, good path for most people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I think the, you have to have a strong level of order in, in any endeavor. And I think you have to just have a little bit of chaos sprinkled on it to get it. So it's not the same thing every single time. I think you have to introduce new ideas, new concepts, maybe some, I don't know, some trouble that that influences you. Um, But anyway, that was, that was, uh, that was my question about it. And that psychedelics, that was my, that was my trip for the whole time was the balance between order and chaos. And how do you, Mm -hmm. and how do you best tie the two and, you know, come away with something that, that adds value. Do you find that you've tried to apply it in some way? Um, I think it's like an outlook on life. I since then mm. I, I took those notes and I scanned them. I was doing this uh, this like annual plan I've done for a few years where I kind of think about where I want to be for the next year and these are the my annual goals. And on on the back of one of those papers, I wrote those notes and some other notes were like I love more than I hate and some some other you know some things that may make sense or may not make sense. Um, but hopefully sure. that makes sense. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm interested in that, that, that crossover between chaos and order, because I think you need both in life. Yeah. And, uh, if you have one more than the other, I think in general, things will head south. Yeah. So you mean, even if you have more order than chaos? Yeah. To me, if I'm looking at like a historical, um, you know, historical references, I say like Hitler was mm-hmm. way order. That was like that's the sure. car order, and then I don't know maybe sure. maybe another example of chaos would be Somalia or something. If I mm-hmm. if I think mm-hmm. of it, not not to get political, but that's that's where my brain goes is is human societies, and like exam like archetypes of each. If there's too much order, then we get locked into like a manual of living, right? And there's something in us that screams to break out of that. And so we as an individual might rebel against that structure. Um, or even if we are trying to cling to too much, even if we don't want to, that um, that chaoticness can break through in a way that can be startling. Um, I, yeah, I, because that's what's going to, MJ, you spoke about the AI element of artistic That was my next question. In, in this essay. No, no, oh, you're good. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and and so it's it's there seems to be almost an inevitability to the development of technology mm. that um, that things are becoming more potent and um, distilled and prevalent, and so we can't. We could maybe go try to find a rock to hide under. <laughs> To, to say it's going to be too much and I'm, I'm not going to be able to integrate this uh and then perhaps the more sustainable long-term view is to say how can i integrate 
with this thing that's going to be so powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if I had a question there. Uh, Sorry. Well, I think the, uh, I mean, you do talk about AI art in your uh, Universal Truths. And uh, my, what my question was going to be, do you consider AI generated art to be real art? Yeah, that's the big question. That's the big question. I mean, when when you try to attempt to answer that, what you realize quite often is that most people don't know how to define art. So that's, you know, you end up entering into a whole other terrain of, of problem, which is like, wait a second, before, before we can agree or disagree on whether AI creates art, can we first just like define, you know, what we think of as art? Because if it's just expression, which is, you know, the, the, the Webster's definition of, of art is just like human expression. It's like, okay, well, is expression the key word or is, is human expression the key word? If it's just human expression, then well, I guess not by Webster's. If it's just expression, sure, then that means it is because an AI is expressing something, even though, you know, you could, you could argue it's just mimicry. Um, so, okay, there's that issue, right? But then just not to skirt the topic, do I think, you know, AI, what AI creates is art uh, I think it's an aspect of art. I think what it's creating is, is clearly based on like an advanced form of mimicry. But I don't think it will be true like art until it's creating it out of its own volition rather than being prompted to do it. When it's, when it's prompted to do it, we're telling it, you know, these are the factors and you have this immense database to... Uh, to draw out of and do something out of that. And so I, I think there's a, there's an element of free will that comes into play. And I think part of what makes something art is that the person in this case, the consciousness that created the thing uh, was often compelled to do it. And it's a culmination of that consciousness is uh, life experiences to that point and in a lot of ways uh, a great work of art encapsulates a lot of that it's it would like you know something like the Sistine Chapel or even something very minor like let's say Salvador Dali's persistence of memory that little tiny painting of the clocks you can't create that painting unless you're Salvador Dali at that age having experienced all of your life experiences up to that moment and also learning about atomic theories because that's part of what he was into at that time, the idea of, you know, uh, the atomic structure and that you can explode these things and what is time in that regard. So, uh, as you know, to make my long answer longer, <laughs> I, think, I think volition, intention, and those things come into play, whether something is art or not. So right now, I think it's just advanced mimicry. And, and a lot of people are doing it, but, so there's a lot of it out there. So it's not as unique as something else that, you know, not everyone is doing. Yeah, what I'm really interested in is what happens when we stop telling the AI to do what what we do. And what is AI creativity when it does what it's good at? Like what, what, what we're telling it to do is mimic what we're generally pretty good at. But what can AI and... This, this kind of, let's say, AI creativity do that we're not good at, that we are that just for lack of imagination, we haven't even considered. And how, how does that influence us in the future? I, I, I hope somebody 
has the ability to stumble on that because I really want to see what it can do that we haven't even considered because of of our of our own weaknesses, you know. Mm-hmm. I I have heard tell of deep AI learning programs so uh, that um are have developed code where when the initial developers, the human developers go back and try to pick apart how it, it was able to create a more efficient pathway to a solution, the human developers don't understand how the code works. Mm. So, uh, have you guys heard about a little this? bit of a program that creates its own code, but that's that's the extent of my knowledge. Right. Uh, the 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 weird part being is it can formulate the building blocks of the code structure in novel ways that the humans then can't uh, decode. <laughs> interesting, isn't that great? There's nothing it's scary so about that. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> but those are the things that fascinate me. Is like the idea, and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson has talked about this in the past, so I'm borrowing it from him, but the idea that the AI can become so advanced that it will tell us the answer to, like, you know, the, the question of, 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 of uh, space-time or the question 42. of... you know, are you, are you, Sure. <laughs> the universal theory uh, of um, relativity that connects everything. But, like, it'll give us an answer to something, like dark matter, and we won't understand what or how it got to it. But we will know it works, and so that's that's really an exciting thing to me. Even though it does come with this other side, what you're talking about, like that it'll develop a language where it can communicate with other uh, computers and AI, and we won't know what it's saying. And that's that can be scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, the that's the I can't stop thinking about the order and chaos because the we have there's so much order to get to the point where we're pro, we program an AI, and then the AI can start programming itself. And at that point, to me, that's the chaos. We let a little bit of that chaos mm. in to help improve the system. If we can, mm. if we can rein it back in. If it gets out of control, then we have some Terminator stuff, ultimate chaos situation going on. But to me, it's like you got to have that order to get that that really valuable chaos that adds value. And I think that's true with the work that you guys are talking about. Is um, when you're doing your menial, if you're doing a menial task or a task that you do all the time, it frees up your mind. To think about like these more chaotic things that you wouldn't otherwise think about, so you need that that order and chaos kind of yin and yang stuff. I'm obsessed, I've been obsessed with it for the next last month or so. So I've talked yeah, to you guys about it. Yeah, with good reason. It's <laughs> it's 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 one of the most important like esoteric concepts of of almost every uh, wisdom tradition for all time is the idea of yeah order and chaos and how they factor in. You could you could reflect on that. For a very, very long yeah. time. You could even I'll let say you guys know how it goes. Yeah, good and evil. Yeah. What's that? I'll, let you, I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, I like the yeah, good and evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's not necessarily good and evil. I think it's just order and chaos. It's like a structure it's... and then the, like order to me is like almost the how you do it and then the chaos is why. Maybe that's another mm-hmm. another analogy. Well, the, the, I think there may even be another level of meta-ness to it, which is that we are a paradoxical existence between uh, contradictions, mm. right? We, so, this is the liminality. Two different. Yeah. So, could what does that mean, MJ? What does liminality mean? Yeah, this is a term that, I mean, it exists. I didn't, I didn't coin it, but it, it's the concept to be, to be not firmly rooted in anything, to be kind of still up in the air. Uh, and especially when it's between two points of a polarity where 
like here is a good example it even works emotionally like most of us has have felt heartbreak and losing someone we loved um, after a relationship right breaks off so in that moment there's a certain degree of chaos emotional chaos and we we're grieving for for the loss of who we were with that person we're grieving for the loss of that person even though they may still be alive but who they were and represented to us no longer exists and so we're, we're also in grief for uh this this potential future that we were looking forward to and in the, in that chaos we're in a point of liminality because we're, we're no longer who we were but we're not yet who we're going to become and in that space there's incredible amount of creative energy possible. And I don't know why. Yeah. It, it might have something to do with the idea that, you know, the push and pull of, of two opposing uh, points on the polarity has the most energy in its center or something like this, if you want to go metaphysical on it. But, but the reality of it is artists create the most meaningful work from heartbreak. You know, the, most, the greatest songs are about, you know, when you learn when they were written, they were after this, this person, you know, uh, broke up their relationship or they're missing this other person um, works of art you know you argue the same thing and so when you're in that state there, there's a, a tremendous amount of creative energy and potential and similarly uh, like let's say with 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 politics or social issues when you stand very firmly on one side of, of one of these polarities you have less creative energy and less, less things to say and less things to play with because you're firmly rooted. But when you're, when you're kind of floating and you can see, the idea is when you're floating in the middle, you can see all sides, you know. You, you, can, you can take a little of this, take a little of that. And, and there's, there's incredible benefit to seeing things that way because in, in some ways you could say you're, you're seeing the world more realistically outside of those illusions that, you know, we root ourselves in if that makes sense oh yeah totally i think that transitional time i've always found like i always have the craziest thoughts when i'm like between jobs or between relationships or mm. heartbreak and you know whatever else i think those are the times where it's just i don't know what it is i agree but something is there in those transitional times or during travel i find when i travel and i'm in a completely novel place mm. my mind uh it's it, almost like it has a different mode yeah. of of how things have a significance and how they tie into each other and then the possibilities that jump off of that. Yeah, no, I love travel, partially for that reason. I, It kind of, it's like immediate inspiration just from mm -hmm. probably the, the whole default mode network thing, again, just being being able to let your brain be bored a little bit and then so it starts to engage these other processes where it, it, it gets more creative and everything but yeah i agree well yes. we're coming up i know mj you said uh our 90 minutes was about your uh the length of time you'd feel comfortable and be optimal in conversation how are you feeling yeah i mean i'm really enjoying our conversation the only reason i i usually aim for something like 90 minutes is is because it, it guarantees that we cover everything we want to without dragging <laughs> without dragging into you know uh maybe meandering too much well before we let you go there's a question that i like to ask and that is uh touching upon something we've already spoken about why do we dream what do you think dreams are for oh boy here we go <laughs> <laughs> 
Why would you assume I would have the answer to such a, a wise philo philosophical you're... question? I'm, okay, so I, I work as a bookkeeper. Hunter works as an engineer. I'm a, we, I'm a product manager, not engineer. That, well, you did some engineering, yeah, a long time ago. I mean, you're, um, you worked in restaurants. And, are you a server? And so we are not as developed creatively, and we haven't done as deep of a dive into Jung and artists as you have. So perhaps you're one step further down the path than we are. Yeah in terms of introspection um and it i just like to ask the question in general to anybody who's willing to answer it yeah i could i could attempt i could attempt to stumble through uh somewhat of an answer i mean i keep a dream journal i'm, I'm on my second dream journal now that I, I write down you know what what occurs in my dreams and sometimes i analyze it through uh, a jungian lens there's a there's a wonderful book by a, a Jungian analyst, an author named Robert A. Johnson, called Inner Work. Really, really high, highly recommended Inner Work. Very straightforward, practical approach to understanding things like dreams and, and working through them and the value that that can provide. Brilliant author. Just he, He's able to distill those, those very high, uh, high concept ideas in, in a very practical way. But so just through experiencing that through reflecting on my own dreams through through seeing inspiration uh, you know for creative ideas through dreams and through even spiritual experiences through dreams i would say it's it's definitely not just the brain entertaining itself absolutely not it's definitely not just like residual memories uh, uh that the mind is like just going through clearly you know there there's in, in neurology they understand that um stabilizing memories does have something to do with good sleep and, and so that that does factor in but just in terms of when you start to play with dreams when you start to even tell your unconscious give me something to chew on tonight like I, i've done this before and it's remarkable what happens if, if like let's say you sit you know on the side of your bed and before you go to sleep, just like speak to yourself, even if it's only internally and say, give me something to chew on. Give me something like really interesting tonight that I can really reflect on and be genuine about this, you know, intention. Later, when you wake up that morning, more than likely you'll have received something like so interesting, so bizarre and full of uh, personal meaning or just something that just completely fizzes your brain. And then it, I, I got one of these that I still haven't quite figured out after, after months of what it means. But so there's something going on there that connects us to our creativity, our spirituality, and our unconscious. All three. And what that is, is, is a wonderful mystery. But to, to say that nothing interesting, you know, happens in dreams, or I don't believe in dreams, um, is really... Is a, is a misguided perspective. So that's where I. It's come thinking from. there's no magic left. Dreams are. We know what dreams are. They just they're just random. So there's nothing. There's no meaning behind them. So I don't need to spend any time figuring out the magic. Yeah, yeah. I believe in magic. I don't know. Yeah. Al, did you have any thoughts on dreams? I'm still trying to figure it out. It's such a mysterious and magical thing. 
Um, I'm trying to kind of aggregate the wisdom of these responses when I ask people to get more of an idea of what it is. Thank you very much for the inner work by Robert A. Johnson recommendation. I'm going to be checking that out. Um, I keep a dream journal as well. I find that uh, I can sleep better if I both keep a, a, a journal of my life and of the the dreams. It's Because otherwise, it's like there's something bugging at me that I'm not addressing. Mm. And it's, it's almost a format of having a conversation with yourself. But it, it at times, it almost seems like it's more than just yourself. It's more almost than just your unconscious. Something that, an idea that has really interested me is shared dreams. That the potentiality of entering into a space that is beyond our own brain. I have no idea if, it's, if there's any possibility to it. But the, the idea of it, the suggestion of it, I find to be very fascinating. And so I'm, it's, I, I, I think it's just an area of exploration that we shouldn't discount. Um, and I think, you know, in our own lives, if someone's willing to be vulnerable enough to bring up a dream, I don't think we should shame them for it. I think that is something that like develops in, you know, the, the modern as a school kid at that age, you know, we bring up a dream and it's like, oh, ooh, weird. Whereas I think that in evolutionarily speaking, we would have come up to the campfire after a night of dreaming. I think people would have sat around and discussed it and mm -hmm. seen what what wisdom there might have been in there. And so there is the collective aspect to dreaming, I think, um, that is neglected these Definitely. days. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, anytime I'm speaking to somebody or I hear someone speaking secondhand, and they seem completely intelligent otherwise and, and seem like they have good opinions, uh, gr grounding in reality. Um, but then they say something like off the cuff, oh, you know, I don't believe in dreams or, yeah, I don't think dreams mean anything. I'm like, okay, I, I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> we clearly can't be friends. <laughs> there's, there's a huge chasm of understanding about, you know, the, the, the individual's intimate inner world that... We, we can't leap over and, and I don't have the time to, to entertain, you know, uh, exploring it with you and, and teaching you. So it's like, oh, I guess we just won't be friends. <laughs> People aren't willing to maybe introduce or admit the introduction of chaos in their own life that, that they you, you can't help it. You're going to go to sleep mm. and uh, you're going to be having experiences that you are not in control of. And that, in a sense, is scary. Um, but. Yep. Part of, say, that you know, touching upon Jung, part of, say, shadow work is to not run from the shadow, but to dive into it, right? Right. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, yeah, yeah. Dreams. Something's going on there. That's the thing. That's the mystery of it, right? The, the unwillingness to engage with, with the self, you could say. You know, for somebody who says, I don't believe in dreams, or they're not that interesting, or uh, they're just gobbledygook. Um, my question would then be, are they, are they really engaging in their own self-growth? Because they might not be. They might not be approaching it honestly because uh, th there has to be a willingness there to see what the inner world is producing to be able to, to grow and find, you know, uh, find those, those, those parts of your shadow, find those parts in your unconscious that you need to develop. And so uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I have that reaction I was talking about is because um, this, this person just putting on a front of, you know, intellectual uh, masturbation and 
um, seeming like they are, you know, advanced and, and concerned about their own self-growth. But if they haven't confronted their own unconscious, which is what you do in, in a dream analysis, then, then really how far have they come? Yeah. I, and it, it's the discussion in psychoanalysis of how influential the unconscious is, is startling because there are so many whims and directions that our awareness can take that we're not even in control of. Like we were saying, um, doing a kind of active imagination, like staring out a window, our mind goes in ways that we didn't invite per se. And so there's, there's the good and the bad to it. It can be scary. It can be overwhelming. Um, but you're, but you're right, MJ, it's people, I, it, we have to take the intention of saying, what is, what is there to me that I don't know about? Mm. Uh, right. Yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree. And then the idea of like the things happening in your thoughts as you simply stare out a window, uh, Jung often referred to that as an event, that, that thoughts are events that occur to you, that you, you don't have a thought, the thought is occurring to you, it's an event. And you, when you see things that way, it puts a lot of things into perspective, you know, things that, you know, uh, are, you, you realize that in yourself, you have conflicting motivations quite often, you know, two things, three things, four things in opposition, and you end up going in one direction for, for whatever reason you, you choose, or maybe that motivation is stronger. And, and when you see these things as, as events that are part of your inner life, uh, it, it puts certain things in perspective for sure. So touching upon uh, the kinds of directions that we can go in life, what kinds of things are on your horizon that, that either we might be anticipating in Creative Codex or, or other kinds of things that might be coming up in MJ Dorian's world? Sure. So right now I'm working on a series about the performance artist Marina Abramovich. And she's a current artist. She's active. It's the first time that I've focused on somebody in one of these long-form narrative episodes that is still alive. And so uh, part of the hidden motivation of that is, is one, I want to introduce uh, performance art to people who otherwise usually brush it off as, as something, you know, ri ridiculous and pretentious. But, but her work is especially meaningful, so, so there's that aspect to it. And also down the line, I kind of uh, have this secret hope that I can get her on the show and mm. Mm, have a conversation with her. So we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But other than that, I have, I have a lot of things in the pipeline. Uh, I'm working on some piano pieces that are, are providing me a lot of meaning that I'm writing. Mm, I'd eventually like to get around to, to writing a book I have in mind about a, a lot of the similar topics that the show covers. And uh, eventually down the line, also a live show that is a mixture of yeah of a lecture and live music and uh, perhaps a narrative as well some moving parts there so so quite a few things quite a few things hey man good to have That's exciting better to be busy than bored yeah i say that all the time <laughs> yeah yeah i agree cool man well i think if we can be lucky enough to have you on our podcast then you can have the same with maria oh we'll see well yeah well, Hopefully, fingers crossed. I'll let you know. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on. I I feel like we're at a point where we could wrap up. What do you guys I'd say? I'd say so. Sounds good. Sounds good. Cool. 
Thank you so much well, for right. having and, me on, by the way. Yeah, thank you, I MJ. really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. All right, that's it. See you guys. Thank you once again to MJ Doring for coming on the Entitled Opinion Podcast. You can listen to MJ's podcast, Creative Codex, wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify. You can also find a lot of MJ's work on his website, mjdorian.com. That's spelt M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N.com. And you can listen to some of his music that he made for the podcast on mjdorian.bandcamp.com, including this song, Pillars of Light. An additional thank you to Liz for helping us make some great cover art for this episode. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of MJ's great music. Thank you.